0: We forgive all of the things that you did trying to protect us. We didn't understand. And I gave him a hug, and he gave me a hug, and we actually puddled up. There were tears. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God.
1: Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone Podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges.
2: Stigma-free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans dot org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans dot org forward slash donate.
1: The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Here's a story. In 1970, the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee was uh, closed down, for want of a better description. Classes were disrupted and suspended because of the anti war protests that had really risen to a fever pitch. And uh, interestingly, uh, a number of the people participating in the anti-Vietnam War protests at that campus at that time were Vietnam veterans, of all things. In fact, they had begun to uh, form a group referred to as the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, and uh, they conducted various activities. One of them, and this is the uh, kind of the heart of the story, one of them was they planted a tree in honor of all the people of, of Vietnam whether they be combatants or civilians or whatever. But they kept the location of this tree and its significance uh, secret as well as they could because they didn't want it torn out by any hawkish factions that were still in favor of the war. This tree went on to grow. In fact, today it's over 30 feet. I believe it's a black walnut. And in uh, uh, 2005, 25 years um after the planting of this tree there was a commemoration the unveiling of a plaque uh talking about what this tree symbolizes and uh, mentioning the people of, of south vietnam well that is by way of introduction today of the individual who joins us john christensen who was on campus in 1970 he was at the unveiling of that plaque in 2005 And uh, I can't wait to hear your story, John. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for joining us.
0: Oh, Bob, it's an honor. And uh, what a beautiful place to start. It's Um, a long
1: time ago, isn't it?
0: It's yesterday. (laughs) It was 1970. um, And there was a picture in one of the underground newspapers of somebody um, putting a sign in the windows of the uh, student union late at night. And that was me. (laughs) <laughs> it was it just so talk about going from Vietnam to uh, another space, and we do have a picture of the uh, the tree. It wasn't a black walnut. It was a really I don't remember. I can't remember stuff, you know. So, but it was a it was a very special tree. And you're exactly right. Uh, we didn't want didn't want it defaced. We didn't want it torn up. And we did not ask permission of the university. We just planted the damn tree.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: What are you going to do about it? Send me to Vietnam? (laughs) And then a bunch of years later, my son was on campus and I showed him uh, the tree and my wife. And uh, he was thinking of enrolling. And he said, Dad, when I get on campus, I'm going to make sure that people know about this. And then we should do a commemoration. just And that just lit a spark. Um, It did. So I identified some of the people in the picture and a few others and got together. He invited uh, people on Channel 12 in Milwaukee. Rebecca Clayfish then was a sponsor. She went on to be on our whatever, vice.
1: Uh, oh, Lieutenant Governor.
0: Yeah, in government. But um, I did an interview with her, and we saw the tree, and she said, John, Channel 12 will be there for you and not just a 30-second soundbite." bite, okay? Hmm. Then I went to... Uh, the chancellor's office. And he said, I'd like to have permission to do this. And he said, John, anything you guys want to do, anything we will pay for. Mm. So basically the only thing was buying a stone, a stone to commemorate it. But he referred me to the Dean of the school of architecture and said, you know, to the Dean, you will help these veterans um, do this.
1: We're going to come back to, um, uh those years at uwm because they really played such a pivotal role i think in your development and and your future career but let's just back up a little bit you were raised in racine wisconsin community south of milwaukee and uh, initially attended a, a college uh well away from
0: wisconsin is that right oh you're getting into all these stories um i didn't take high school too seriously and luckily i was smart enough And I was hanging around some very smart people. So I ended up with B's and C's, but um, A's were really pretty elusive. I didn't worry about it. I also assumed I was going to go to college, but didn't do a whole lot to raise any kind of money. And my family is a one earner family. Um, So all of a sudden I graduated. My friends ended up going to uh, Madison and schools like that. And my dad, who went to Dana College, it's a Lutheran Liberal Arts College in Blair, Nebraska, right on, Blair, Nebraska, <laughs> Blair, Nebraska, he said he went to college there and he would be willing to pay for the first two years. I said, great. So I go out to Blair, Nebraska, which is a farm, farmer's community, nothing against farmers, but it was a suitcase community. So on the weekend, they'd all go home and I'd be stuck on campus. And on that campus, I was really pretty depressed, but we didn't get newspapers. And the only TV we watched was Nebraska football and um, gun smoke. And so I was very ignorant about what was going on in the outside world and all that kind of stuff.
1: So needless to say, at this time, you didn't have much understanding or backgrounding on what was happening in Vietnam.
0: Nothing. I didn't even know about Vietnam.
1: Despite the fact that you were of an age where there was some likelihood that without college or the deferment at that time that went along with college, you could well, be drafted.
0: How about that? So one <laughs> thing led to another. Um, theater did get involved in that, and it'll be kind of part of my future story. Um, and I took a job doing technical direction for Summerstock Theater, which paid me um, about $125 a show. So at the end of the season, I would have earned just $500. Which went mostly to um, cigarettes and alcohol and whatever. And I got a phone call from my dad, and he started humming the Air Force uh, song. Hmm. And I knew at that moment I just got drafted. Really? Yeah. And i I was stuck. I my grades were not real good, and so I was probably on some, like an academic probation. I wasn't really mm-hmm. college. I was in a very intense. Um, Relationship that at that age was kind of sex focused, uh, and oh my God, obsessive, and I had no money. So well, okay, I guess I'm going to enlist because <laughs> I don't want to be drafted. And um, and again, I didn't know anything even about that. It was more I wanted to make my own choice. Sure. So I tried to get in the Air Force because that's where my dad was. And, uh, they they had a waiting list, and so I couldn't do that. So I went down the hall. I kind of skipped the Marines. Um, I was about 120 pounds, and I was not a John Wayne. Um, so I just, I didn't, wasn't that I was afraid of combat or anything. I assumed that when I went to Vietnam, no matter what I did, I was going to die. Okay, I mean, I just, I just, whatever.
1: How old were you at this time, 19 or something? Or
0: um, Yeah, I was a little older. Well, actually 20. Okay. Um, because I had two years of college, so mm-hmm. I was a little older than most, but I'm still a kid. Um,
1: so you but, you chose to enlist, thinking it might be in your better interests than getting drafted. Yeah, and ultimately went to Vietnam. And what happened there?
0: <laughs> well, um, so I didn't go to I didn't go to uh, grunt school after um, basic. I did go to just more of a generalist school uh, that they chose. I didn't choose it but that's mm-hmm. where they sent me. And uh, then my orders came down and it said, I'm assigned to an artillery unit. I don't know if it's a battalion, whatever it would be of the 25th division.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I said, well, I don't know anything about the 20- what What is that? So I talked to somebody and they said, wow, you lucked out. They're um, headquartered in Hawaii. Oh my! Really? So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to pack my Hawaiian shirts, and I'm going to get off that airplane when everybody else goes to Vietnam. I'm going to Hawaii. It didn't work that way. So we landed in Hawaii, and then we kept on going.
1: <laughs> Next stop, Saigon.
0: Yeah, well, Benoit, yes. Yeah, Benoit. So I went in there, and it was this. what really got me. Everybody says it's the heat, which was true, but it was also the smell. Mm-hmm. I think I got the smell of Vietnam 1st
1: that what, kind of, what, what kind of smell oh, was that?
0: What's that? What, sure.
1: what kind of a smell was that? It can, like the, I
0: didn't know. Like the tropical. Uh, yeah, rotting a... jungle and probably they didn't have toilets and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe marijuana thrown in. I don't mm-hmm. know. But anyway, um, what really happened to me at that moment in psychological terms is called dissociation. Okay. I went into wherever it is that I went.
1: Right? Somewhere other than where you were.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Emotionally, psychologically, Mm -hmm. um, I became, I just lockstep. I did whatever it was I was supposed to do. And and in my mind, whatever it was, I was going to be the best. I was. So let me just do this last part. Here it comes. I assumed I was going to go to the 25th Division in an artillery unit. And by that time, I knew a little bit more about what was going on, having gone through basic and everything. That I assumed there'd be sandbags, and uh, now it's this red dust, mm-hmm. and I would be a ammo humper, or who knows? Because I wasn't trained in artillery, right. but that's where I was going to go. So I go into um, replacement depot, and the real you know, rebel depot, mm-hmm. and there was a spec four there. And coming out of basic, everybody was sir.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I mean, really. So this spec four, who I assumed um, was speaking with the words of God, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: said, um, Christensen, um, I've got a choice here. You had two years of college, and there's a unit that uh, is looking for somebody enlisted to join them, uh, and it's a logistical unit, whatever that was. And you can either go there or you can go to the 25th Division. What would you like to do? Oh, yeah, right. God just asked me to make a choice, and I really couldn't make a choice. So I said, well, what would you choose? And the specialist said, I'd, I'd do the logistics one. Mm. So That's what I ended up doing. So I was in headquarters, uh, first logistical command, probably the biggest unit in Vietnam. Everybody in transportation working on this thing, you know, were a part of the first log. But there's only – I didn't know this. There were very few of us. There were actually only about 200 in the headquarters. And no
1: what incident. what is it that you did exactly?
0: The, the group I was with was responsible primarily for all of the things that came in on ships. Oh, man. You were yeah, at the head, so of, you were there at the were head of the— Thousands of tons a day that came into um, Saigon or just outside of Saigon. And You were at the head of the pipeline. <laughs> yes, we were the—yeah, we were the transfer point of everything that came into the country part of my learning was that there was a black market uh. and these things would come on, on trucks with connexes on them mm-hmm. and some Vietnamese would pull up to that. And we were guests of the country. Mm-hmm. If they, if a Vietnamese person wanted to take something, it was a real political thing. So they would load up or back up to a semi and they'd drive off and it became property of the black market or the Viet Cong. And part of our job is really to do what we could to stop that and interfere with that. So I spent some time in the field, mostly in places that were maybe on a battalion level. Um, So the grunts, of course, thought they were completely safe, you know, oh my God. Um, And I was kind of scared out of my wits, you know, and things would happen. The war would happen, didn't happen to me directly. Um, but I went back then to the office, if it were, it was a Quonset hut, knowing something that my peers didn 't know. They knew they were safe, they could go to Saigon, they could go to downtown, they could go and drink um, and but I realized that we were surrounded by people who wanted to kill us Okay, I mean I knew that and they that,
1: even even as a 20 year old did that have an impact
0: on you? Did it change your outlook? What, what was the effect of that? I had to survive. And I learned, along with people out in the field, that you cannot survive in fear. You know, so you got to do what you got to do. And so, but remember, I dissociated. So it, it did have an impact on me, but only in terms of survival. Um, but I didn't internalize it.
1: The other thing, let me ask you this you're you're seeing uh, eyewitness, eyewitnessing this massive amount of material that is moving into Vietnam. Did that give you uh, again, as a young person, some notion of the scope, the size, the breadth, the width of the Vietnam War and its its
0: undertaking? Well, by that time I was twenty one I was a grown up. Oh. Um, I celebrated my 21st birthday in basic training, and I had um, a fever of about 102 when I qualified, which is also important to me. I was second highest in my platoon with this fever. Anyway, um, so now I'm 21. I'm going, we primarily went to the Saigon um, port, you know, and yeah, that was huge. That was massive. That was Uh, A lot of people, a lot of Americans, but also a lot of Vietnamese um, taking things off these massive ships, putting them in trucks and then leaving in a 100 degree, 102 degree temperature. So I'm sweating. I'm watching this. But, you know, there's no sense of history with any of this. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was just something I was doing, but I didn't know about the war part. Mm -hmm. Okay. I could hear bombs. I could watch um, flares going up at night and stuff. But even where I was stationed was right next to the airport, uh, Tonsonute, in little Quants sitting right out there. So by and large, the war, other than the sounds, didn't touch me. We lived in a French Foreign Legion compound. Um, so it was a villa. It's just weird. It was just such a, what would be the word? Kind of a psychotic. Mm-hmm. Um, split. You know, this was happening over here and this was happening over here. I was learning to smoke marijuana, uh, which we did pretty openly, actually. And nobody cared. And I was a top soldier. I mean, I was strack. I was working on general staff. So I could work a lot of times stoned. I'd do my job stoned. that uh, might be stoned. Um, and I did my job. That's why I liked that marijuana better than alcohol. There's no way I could have done, you know, my job with them. So I just lived my life. I walked to work in the economy. Um, planes were taking off. All the stuff was going on. Tanks that occasionally would come down the road. And I go, oh, shit, man, that could be me. Mm-hmm. And they looked rugged. They looked rugged but proud. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they were really kick-ass. And what? I wasn't what do you think from
1: the experience of actually being in Vietnam stands out the most still today with you?
0: I measure my life uh, in very specific terms of before Vietnam and after Vietnam. I've had three uh, open heart surgeries. Um, I've got a son, went through a difficult marriage. I've got a wonderful marriage, but actually it wasn't until this woman that I can say, before Vietnam and after Vietnam, and now it's before Patty and after Patty. This is your second wife? Yeah, my God, she saved my life. She's a wonder. How so, did she save, uh, John, how did she save your life? Oh, she she deals with me. She still does. You know, she doesn't put up with my BS, but <laughs> she doesn't feed into it. Okay.
1: So, so is some of this BS that you uh, profess to possess,
3: <laughs>
1: does this... Uh, Does this harken back to Vietnam in some way? Yes.
3: Everything
0: harkens back to Vietnam. Okay. That whole persona is with me.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. And up until very, very recently, the last maybe couple of years, because I found some people who also hope save my life. That includes you and Mike Orban, the host or the kind of the founder of this. I love Mike because he doesn't personalize at all. He's always saying, no, this is not me. This is we. Okay. But Michael and Bob, you know, you guys are wonders. And I met a couple psychiatrists. And I, I've worked with psychiatrists and psychologists for 50 years, about no, 40 years. But I met a couple who were um, veterans, uh, Mike McBride and Greg Berwick. Mm-hmm. And I could talk to Greg. He was a Marine grunt (laughs) in Iraq. And so I didn't have to explain anything to him. You know, he knew he was there and I could trust him. Sure. Let me back up for one second.
1: There was one thing that uh, occurred while you were in Vietnam. You and uh, actually hundreds of thousands of others at the same time. And that was... What is sometimes referred to as the Tet Offensive, the Tet Offensive of what was it, nineteen sixty-seven? Oh,
0: sixty-eight.
1: Sixty-eight. When the yeah. uh, communists
0: basically overran. Oh my God! The Did they? Uh, Did that change your outlook? Oh, on, that was everything. Uh, oh, that was absolutely everything. Uh, that happened. It was during the tete, um, celebration, celebrations, so it's firecrackers and all that stuff. This is the and Chinese New Year celebration. In basically, September. yeah. Well, in the Southeastern, I guess, anybody that was into that. By that time, we moved out of um, Tansinut and into Longbin, which became a very huge complex. But when mm-hmm. we moved in, we were one of the first units. Um, so I was out doing perimeter guard, and we were not, paying much attention to that, really. It was a big thing. We we were guarded by the fourth division, I think the first, you know, we were protected. So we did have bunkers, but there were no tops to them per se, they were just sandbags. Um, Thinking of this now, after so long, we didn't actually have a radio of any kind in my bunker, maybe somewhere else on the line, I don't Mm -hmm. know. I, I have no idea if there were any machine guns along the line in honest to God, I've been really thinking of this recently. I don't even know if I had ammunition, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: you know, at least I I must have, because I fired my weapon, but it was a thing where we were not allowed to put, um, as far as I know, we were not allowed to put the clip in or jacket in. Right. Um, So we had it. We must've had it. It just simply wasn't fully loaded. No. Well, you know, we were supposed to be safe. Yeah, in the rear for crying, I was a rump, you mm-hmm. know. I wasn't supposed to be in the damn war, right? But they blew the ammo dump uh, where I was, and and we were taking incoming. So there were people in the wire, and there were a lot of um, bloop bloop uh, mortars mm-hmm. coming in, and one did land kind of in front of us, and I was pretty hunkered down actually at that point, um, but it came close enough that I wasn't wounded. Um, but it kind of blew off my helmet and threw me back. Um, yeah, and that changed it. So that's really? an oh my God, or an oh shit thing. We were supposed to be safe. And then the more I knew about this and found out, I mean, I know we ended up winning it, but we didn't. By that time, it was too late to do this stuff. Um, and, in fact, we'd, we'd fought the war totally wrong, from my understanding. Special forces, small units, that kind of thing. But, no, we weren't marching along. I think you were part of that. Mike mm-hmm. was. Marching along, bang, bang, tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. My guess is people probably were smoking cigarettes out there, right? Well, that smell, no, if you don't smoke, was forever, okay? We're talking. Armed Forces radio. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the Vietnamese knew exactly where you were and came and fought you any time that they chose to do it. Oh, my God. Let's Um, let's fast
1: forward a little bit here to... Yeah, uh,
0: please do. Please do. uh,
1: You come back to Milwaukee and start attending the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, as we mentioned at the very head of the show here today. And uh, (laughs) that, I think, from the little bit that i know was a, a very unique turning point for you was it not just describe for us how it is that you would ultimately become involved with the counseling or
2: mm-hmm. the
1: interaction with others your age with kind of an emphasis on reaching out and making a connection to vietnam veterans at okay. uh, at uwm
0: it was uwm but I, I and i don't want to try to control this i really like that you're kind of helping me through all of this But after Vietnam, I was sent to West Point to work with the troops. And I saw a psychologist um, because I was, I just knew I was wrong. Um, And that was a whole wonderful, terrible kind of thing, but more wonderful than terrible. But that's really what got me into the beginning of, he didn't know what the hell was going on. He was a captain. He was a trained psychologist working at West Point. He didn't have a freaking clue. What was it that bothered you? Oh my God, the whole thing. But when I went in, I was a happy-go-lucky. You know, I got decent grades. I had a lot of friends. I was, you know, I mean, really, I was a, I was a good kid. I listened to Peter, Paul, and Mary. I listened to the Kingston Trio. I played folk music, you know, Kumbaya was everything. Now, all of a sudden, and living in New York and West Point, I had an apartment on the Lower East Side, so my indoctrination was the Fillmore East, which was the home of rock and roll on, on the East Coast. Fillmore West was the other one. So I listened to Janis Joplin. I listened to Gracie Slick. Listen, listened to uh, that guy with the doors, Morrison, Satana. So many people I don't even remember, but we would go in and just automatically, this is where we would go. We'd get stoned. We dropped acid, whatever. We'd walk in and there were a bunch of... Milwaukee hip people, you know, doing the the promenade, standing up and looking. And so that got me, God, talk about psychotic. But then I get back to Milwaukee, and I I knew about drugs and rock and roll, but I didn't know about anti-war. Okay, I mean, I sort of kind of knew it was there, uh, but at West Point. The only time I did that is... With 101st Division on the Fourth of July, I had to go and stand with them, and yeah. like make sure the demonstrators didn't come into the campus. <laughs> okay, yeah, whatever. You know, smoke some dope. Um, so when I let got me to just law... go
1: back to the. Uh, I want to just go back for, real quick to the person that you were seeing during those that West Point assignment. What were you trying to put your finger on that bothered you so bad that you felt you needed to uh, drink and drug it away?
0: Well, looking back, I was I was phenomenally depressed because, of what, depressed.
1: because of what you had seen or been. Yeah, a
0: just ages? what I'd seen, what I'd lived, what I suppressed, mm-hmm. what I denied, just to survive. Okay. I know the picture of a ramp is, is pictured in such a yaha ha ha ha, you know sort of way, but that was not as at least for me and those who were living on the economy, uh, it was not that easy. Driving convoys was, it was scarier shit. Mm-hmm. You knew you were dead, is what it came down to. So I it, I was exploding, wanting to get back to who I was, the person who laughed. I was. I was studying Herman Hesse, mm-hmm. a book called Steppenwolf. Oh, my God, that's the most depressing book I've ever read. But I said, that's, that's me, okay? You know, you're speaking my language. Oh, we've heard that recently.
1: So there was this
0: loss of innocence that you were grieving. Oh, yes. Loss of my humanity. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I only had one situation where I had to pull the trigger in anger, and that was during that, Um but I would have gladly killed anybody out there. Mm-hmm. I think my... I don't know if it killed anybody or not, but you know what? God damn it. I, I i was ready to do that. I was ready to die. Okay? I was. I was ready to die to protect the people behind me. Um, And as you know, that changes a person forever. So what I had... I I call post-Vietnam syndrome. And when I got back to Milwaukee and I went to the union, I sat kind of in my, with my back to the wall. And all these kids were out there laughing and talking and not paying any attention at all. They're walking on the streets. They had no situational awareness. They had nothing. (laughs) They're like brain dead. Don't you know (laughs) that this is dangerous? So, how so I did that happen? the room and I saw a guy over here sitting by himself, and another one over there. So I went and joined him and I I ended up meeting some people that really also changed my life. I've, I've had my life changed so many times. Mm-hmm. A guy named Markoff, who who died just recently, um, and he was a medic uh, in the Navy. So he worked for the Marine unit, and we just started talking, and he was a member of SDS, Students for Democratic Society. And uh, he brought that mentality on campus. The the pr- student body president who was also anti-war. And he brought me in as, if you believe this, my art director. So I became involved with um, campus politics. And it was as the art director. And I had my own gallery. Mm-hmm. And I was just doing things. I did projects. And all of this was surrounded about trying to find out who I am again, um, and I don't know what changed it. The drugs didn't help, but I don't know that they hurt. You know, they, uh, I did more drugs during that time than drinking, which I'm very, very thankful for. It was mostly acid, which, you know, is kind of that introspective thing. Um, I did get to meet Baba Ramdas during that time, Timothy Leary's partner. Um, but again, I don't know, I didn't know who these people were Okay, so they just did that. So the
1: connections, excuse me, the connections that you were forming when you returned to uh, the university with uh, different individuals and different groups, did these new connections help with some of these feelings uh, that were so turbulent inside of you?
0: Well, they did, but again, this became my persona. I didn't deal with me. I began dealing with other veterans. Okay. That I thought that I knew it was even worse off than I was. And what more were More angry, more depressed. Yeah, more, that's what I was going to.
1: Hold it. What was it that was so affecting those veterans and what did it stem from?
0: Well, they now call it post traumatic stress disorder, but we didn't have a word for it. We didn't know. All we knew is they had that look, you know, the, that thousand yard stare. Mm-hmm. They were totally vigilant, they protected their back. They were having nightmares. Yeah. So we didn't know what was going on to us. I went to the VA and I I, I only really lasted once. It was a big room which sit on folding steel chairs while these people would walk around and laugh and smoking their cigarettes. And I saw a psychiatrist. And the only thing I remember, I think he was a psychiatrist, but the only thing I remember was him asking me. Yes, yes, but do you love your father or your mother better? Oh, my. Well, yeah. Uh, what is that other word? Uh, oh, anyway, fuck. What the fuck? I'm sorry. You know, you get blank it out, but it, there's no other word for that. So I left the VA. It took me 30 years to come back. I tried to see a counselor on campus, and I ended up teaching him about what was happening to me. He He tried to shrink me. But there's nothing to shrink, okay? I was a different personality, and so he thought I had a personality disorder, okay? I did well, too, as mm-hmm. far as that goes, you know. <laughs> so I finally decided. Excuse
1: me, excuse me, John. I'm laughing not because it's funny, but oh, I know. Because I, know. I take nothing it, it almost sounds
0: so bizarre that there's yeah, some humor, yeah, I guess. And there's. You some... have to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. it really, you really have to do that. Personality too. disorder. Okay, so. I want to say that I never, ever consciously chose to be a counselor. Um, after my bachelor's degree, I was thinking of getting a master's. I went to the school of social work, but there was a locked door between me and them. In my going to a, a small college, said so I got to know all my professors personally. Mm-hmm. We played tennis, we played cards. You know, There's nobody around. We just hung out together. You know, They were doctor so-and-so, but we hung out together. Mm-hmm. So I, even during bachelor's degree, I was used to getting to know my teachers. I didn't. So all of a sudden I go into this place, MSW, and a locked door. And there was something energetically that just showed, John, this is not where you need to be. Okay, this is not going to work for you. So I went back to the School of Education, got a master's degree in cultural foundations of education, whatever that means. But I carried that with me And I started working in the community. And even when I was in Vietnam Veterans of America, the whole demonstration, because I was not a combat veteran in Vietnam, I also was not going to be a combat veteran in the demonstrations. Mm -hmm. I was split. I was a veteran. So I agree the war is wrong, but I can't go out there and do that stuff. You know, my other brothers did, some of them. Okay. And they did it very, very well. They're very... They did it beautifully, elegantly, but I split off from that and bega- I began doing some student um, work study programs and that connected me, you know, to something. And then I got, there's an Emergency Veteran Employment Act and so I got funding to go into this, uh, financial aids and do things. And there was one of the vice chancellors, Ernie Spates, he's not with us now. He brought me in one day. He was kind of my mentor. He said, John, campuses around the country are spitting on and calling Vietnam veterans baby killers. John, that's not going to happen on on the UWM campus. That Mm -hmm. is not going to happen. And you and some others are going to be a part of making sure that Vietnam veterans get into college or wherever they need to be. So I formed the first well, I formed it, Ernie picked a lot of people to be with it uh, on, the, on the kind of committee with me, but there was no funding and there was no space. You know, so we did what we could in financial aids and admissions and counseling, you know, to be able to add some resources, um, but we didn't do well. But now I am so proud that we planted that tree um, and that established our presence on that campus. And today they have a program called Maverick, whatever it stands for, but it's like Afghanistan and Iraq veterans. And, you know, Vietnam veterans are there as elders and they have a place right off the student union. So, I mean, you exit right from the union and the cafeteria. Um, they've got funding, they've got paid staff, and it's it is phenomenal. UWM um, is, I believe, has the largest number of veterans on campus uh, than anywhere else. I mean, I, that maybe is debatable. Okay. And I'm so proud that that I, they didn't even know. Well, actually, they didn't know about me and about the others because they kept a the history. I want to remind
1: folks that uh, we are chatting with John Christensen. John uh, is a counselor and, uh, and a Vietnam and Army veteran and has spent many years working with veterans and uh, in later years working with um, people who have witnessed trauma of some degree, that is to say perhaps a a workplace shooting or um, other very traumatic events. John is among a team of individuals who then are assigned to uh, sit down and listen to individuals as they, um, I assume, discuss grief and its aftermath, et cetera. but, uh, as you've heard so far in our conversation, folks, he is an individual who has had the experience an almost full circle experience of the days when Vietnam veterans, in this case, were mistreated upon their return to the u s because of a lack of any outreach and other supportive connections. To a time when there are more and more um, supportive connections for veterans to attach themselves to and to uh, hopefully acclimate again, to uh, reacclimate to society and, and move forward with a life that is fulfilling versus a life that is uh, just uh, scorched by grief, uh, pain, sorrow, and a whole litany. of of other really uh, traumatic effects. So you represent that circle, John. I think that's just amazing. You're 75 years old. You've had a wonderful life. And in that uh, lifetime after Vietnam have had this experience of being uh, really a unique participant and contributor to what has been a societal change in the way in which um, veterans and veterans issues
0: are addressed. Bob, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for honoring the work that I do. But I'd like to really, really jump in the time that we have left. Sure. Uh, to what I've discovered. So it's a, it is a longer journey, but I've learned so much. Um It's been actually, I counted it as 50 years. And none of it has been really intentional. I've just had opportunities.
1: Well, you mentioned um, to me one time that uh, so much good has come from so much not good. Tell me what that means.
0: Yeah, well, what it really means to me is when I, John, my ego, made a decision, um, pretty well ended up not being good. Okay? I mean, it, just, it was terrible. Vietnam was terrible. Why didn't I go to Canada? Why didn't I do anything? But I didn't. Why did I come back and not live on the street that would have helped me maybe get into engineering? But I lived on Brady Street. Was with the hippies, oh, as, cool. you've, as you've as you
1: as you've described the Hate Ashbury of
0: Milwaukee, Hate Ashbury of. Right? So, <laughs> you know, I really want to leap through all of this, but mm-hmm. it's the journey um, that to me is so important. And really, as I look back on it, it was um, I'll use the word God, um, and I don't at this point mean that in a religion. So, I mean that as life energy. Mm-hmm. And I have come to believe that we are not superior to other creatures, including plants or the water of the earth, that we are we are really connected to everything on the planet. However, about three or four hundred years ago, we decided in the West, not so much the East world, but the Western world, Europe and America, that we are gonna turn our back. On that connection to everything else on the planet. If we killed a deer, we thanked the deer for being there so that I could feed my family. But I great, gave great honor to that deer for being there. I respected the saber toothed tiger who may kill me unless I'm able to do something. You know, we were all connected. Then science came in, and now, especially, I've worked with the VA for p- the past several years. And they've gotten to what is called evidence-based therapy. And I look at that. I do cognitive therapy. Of course, I do. I work out the person's brain and their insight and their problem solving. And that has helped me and so many others and doctors and everything do miracles. However, miracles were being done before we had them. They were called shamans or medicine men or medicine women. Um, And what I have discovered is in my healing or helping veterans heal and other people of trauma, which for me is just my mission, it's just what I do, okay? <laughs> like firemen going to a fire, cops doing whatever. You know, it's just what I do. Um, I don't know what else to do. So I, it come to the understanding that I cannot only work with basically what is the left side of the brain, logical, rational, see it, touch it, there is evidence for that, but my argument has always been with all the, I've gotten out two master's degrees that says um, if you see it, it's real. If you can measure it, it's real. Anything else is woo-woo <laughs> or it's religion. And we know religion is woo-woo, you know, whatever, those who are not into that, you know, so we may believe the Christian religion is, is not woo-woo, it's real. But if you happen to be a Buddhist, you think the same thing about Um, whatever that guy's name, Buddha. If you're a Muslim, you happen to be, it's, you know, come on, folks, we're messed up. We're killing each other. We're hating each other. We have political divides. Look at the last political thing we just went through. And you know what? We're talking about world survival, not the world. The world's doing just fine. Humanity is killing itself. We are killing each other. I I felt a need to do something more than just talk to the logical, rational person, who very often is not very logical or rational. You know, we marry people that we didn't ever marry. You know, we get a twenty thousand dollar wedding day, but we don't think, what am I going to do for the next fifty years? How am I going to live with this person day to day and day? So. I said, okay, you gotta go back and find your soul. And I did have a coming to God moment in Vietnam where I gave up my soul. And so my whole journey has been to reconnect with my soul. And I've gone through all these other different trips and I finally just came down to the understanding. Can I read a really short piece? Sure. Thank you, I will. I thought this was uh, Nelson Mandela's speech when he became president of South Africa at the age of 80 all of you guys think you're too old. John 75, man, I'm just beginning. You know, I got, I got whatever I got. Okay, but this is why I read it. It was actually written by uh, Marion Williamson, who's a phenomenal poet. But I took this and this also changed my life. So many things have changed my life to make it better and better and better. And I share this now with all of the veterans, the clients, if you will, um, that I work with. Here it is. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? (laughs) Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people will not feel insecure. Oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Who am I to do this? You know what I mean? We are born manifest, the glory of God that is within us. It is not in just some of us. It is in everyone, the people who are asleep. I'm a golfer, so, you know, it's in the bowlers, you know, it's in the the Republicans, it's in the Democrats, it's in the people who are demonstrating for this, whatever they're believing in today, violently. Okay. I have to step back in that and say, is this your light or is this your dark? This is coming out of anger. This is not God's work. I don't care what you call yourself. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Damn it. Do it. Do it. Strip away your filters. Open your heart. Embrace woo-woo. That's where God is. That's wh- and it's in the rocks or the stones. It's in the crystals. It's in plants. It's in animals. It surrounds us. And when you get into this a little farther, what you understand is those of us who are part of the warrior society are guarded by warrior spirits who are watching over us. They were with us in Vietnam. And when some of us died, the spirits, our spirits, embraced them and took them away. And it's okay, you're surrounded now by your brothers and they're at the wall. You know, that was such an issue in the wall. That's where we go and put our hands. I was there on the honor flight. It was really kind of cool. And I'm walking along with my son. So that is just the greatest thing, you know. And he is so into this stuff. And we're walking down there, all kinds of bats, you know, at the wall and stuff. But coming the other way, all of a sudden I heard this language and I recognized it. I didn't understand it. But I said, shit, man, that, that thing is Vietnamese. And I turned and there was a Vietnamese man with his wife and his daughter walking along the wall and he was explaining from the vietnamese side what the wall meant Wow! part of what blows my mind is i'm the only one that recognized him and i went over and i just said are you vietnamese he said yes i said oh my god what we did to your country And he says john you did wonderful things for our company country while you were there we forgive all of the things that you did trying to protect us, we didn't understand. And I gave him a hug and he gave me a hug and we actually puddled up. There were tears,
3: mm-hmm. oh my God.
0: So I believe so much being on the mission that I'm on and you're on and Mike is on and all of these people, including so many people that are listening, um. All you have to do is be there, okay? Just be there. Your voices inside are going to say, this is crazy. This is, woo, you can't do that. That's your fear, okay? And that fear controls us so much. What's gonna happen politically? What's gonna happen with our income? You know, what's gonna happen with all of this? I got a drinking problem. What happens if I stop? Oh my God, how do I deal with sobriety? Or if you're married to one of us, God bless you with what you have to put up with, okay? But you are the strength, the woman, in most cases, or the man, and the other, now that we've got so many women veterans, and veterans are veterans, they're all warriors. It is so important to women, okay? Women who are healers are warriors. They come to that same spot. So anyway, that's where I am. That's where I will be until the day I die. And I happen to be one of those saying, "Hmm, I don't have a lot of time, there's so much to do. And my spirit comes back in and says, basically, John, (laughs) just do what you gotta do. You got plenty of time because you're gonna come back again. So what you haven't done now, you could have another chance. And boy, did that square me away. Um, I was reading a book. I'm going on and on, I'm sorry. But um, I was in my quiet room, and I've got ADD. So meditating to me is like really, you know, five seconds at a time is what you're going to get. And I looked down, there was a book of like um, the Buddha's Guide or Things to Happiness or something. One and a half pages, like Reader's Digest, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was reading through, and I got to the uh, one on patience, and this is years ago. I said, you know, I think I ought to read this. And let's see, oh, it's 2.30 two in the morning. Well, I can read this and I can meditate a little bit and then I can get back and I'll be asleep by three. <laughs> okay. So I read this, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, okay, okay, I've got it. I've got it. Wait a minute, I've got to turn the page. And I turned the page and the Dalai Lama says, patience is one of the hardest lessons for most of us. <laughs> but you know what? You've got forever. Take your time. Okay. I'm going, oh, my God. That changed my life. But today, that was, I don't even know, two, three, four years ago, I am still working on patience. When I get pissed off, when I swear, when I get irritated, when I, at night, the gremlins come and I can't sleep, all the things you did wrong, John, you did this and you did that. You say this, you know, but that, I don't live that out here, okay? I admit that I'm racist at times in my shadow, okay? I am. Um, I've worked with the homeless veteran programs, predominantly African-American, for nine years. I am totally involved with that. But there are times when I get really mad at something that a black person did, and that word comes out internally. Okay, I'm not pleased with that at all, but I have to accept that. And I have to accept that I'm white and so much of what I have is just because I'm white. You know, it just, just, not a, it just is. You know, so get over it. If people were it, it being blacked and lived in neighborhoods like us with two parent families that they could have that had jobs that they could send their kids to college They would not be doing the things that they are doing, but they do not have that. So get over it. Okay. What do you want to say, Mr. Bach?
1: Well, (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll tell you what I want to say. Okay. I, I want to say, thank you. Okay. Thank you for the inspiring words. Thank you for the encouragement for all of us to walk toward the light. And, um, and personally thanks for your friendship and by all means today thank you for your time
0: well thank you Bill. thank you for all that yourself john Um, christensen go ahead well i just want to say namaste which is the other way of saying so be it or amen
1: john christensen is our our guest on uh, the stigma free vet zone podcast today and uh, so glad that he could join us. I want to pass along some other thanks. Also, Mike Orban for recording our conversation, Mark Lineiac for his editing work, and most of all, uh, as always, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in for this segment of the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. This is Bob, Bob. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage Orban org.
2: Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at Orban org forward/ donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at orbanfoundationforveterans.org forward slash donate.
1: On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.